I do invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings. We are in chapter 4. We're, um, we're skipping ahead just slightly to the end of uh, chapter 4. I'll, I'll come back to the center section um, at another time. But this chapter uh, is the beginning of a series of miracles that are performed through the prophet Elisha. And this morning, we are looking at two uh, relatively brief um, uh, descriptions of miracles that both have to do with this food, this miracle food. Would you stand for the reading of God's inspired word? So this is uh, chapter 4, verses 38 through 44. And Elisha came again to Gilgal when there was a famine in the land. And as the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, set on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. One of them went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it his lap full of wild gourds and came and cut them up into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. And they poured out some for the men to eat. But while they were eating of the stew, they cried out, O man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. He said, then bring flour. And he threw it into the pot and said, pour some out for the men that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. A man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? High King of heaven, we bow before your throne, bringing our humble petition that you would cause your spirit to flow in and through us as a river of living water. Open our hearts and speak to us, encouraging us where we need to be encouraged and correcting us where we need to be corrected. Your word is our spiritual food So feed us now, we ask, for the sake of the great name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Standing in the background of this narrative, so we're continuing through these narratives that are focused, they're centered on this prophet Elisha. And standing in the background of this particular narrative, uh, beginning in verse 38, is a famine that strikes the land of Israel. It's the same famine, um, well, if it is the same famine that's described later in chapter 8, this is a famine that will last for seven years. The narrative takes place in the northern kingdom. It's uh, in this kind of a southern region of the northern kingdom near a a town called Gilgal. And um, this famine, it talks about just being in the the land of Gilgal, but what we're meant to understand is 
This is a famine that has uh, attacked the entire northern kingdom of Israel. Now, sometimes when we hear there's a famine, uh, we might conclude that, that, you know, no food. And the reality is, you know, there are different degrees to famines in terms of their severity. It doesn't necessarily mean an absence of food, just as a drought doesn't mean a complete absence of water. But it depends on the severity and the duration. And it appears that this famine was severe. And we shouldn't be surprised by the presence of a famine in the land. At this time, the Israelites are under the law of Moses. And the law of Moses makes it very clear that if if the people turn away from God, if they turn um, uh, towards the worship of idols, this is what they can expect, that God's hand will be withdrawn from the land. And and there's a a very close correlation um, with the obedience or disobedience to the law of Moses and to the experience of either famine in the case of disobedience, or in the case of obedience, the law um, uh, promised that there would be rain, that there would be good harvest, that there would be fertility and blessing. Um, And this is partly a feature of the particular covenant that ancient Israel was living under in their relationship with the Lord. Well, this is what happens in the northern kingdom. They they've not, don't recall that not only have they turned toward idols, but they've made a hard turn. They've entered into this kind of antichrist kind of turn where their commitment to idols now has reached a level to which now they've persecuted true believers. They've gone after the prophets of God. And so, again, we're not surprised then uh, that there is this famine in the land. Now, in general, even if we're not under the law of Moses and there isn't these kind of correlations between, you know, natural, um, you know, good harvests or, or famines and earthquakes and so forth in the case of idolatry, it is nevertheless still true that the worship of dead idols inevitably leads to a poisonous culture. The worship of dead idols um, and turning our, uh, our hearts away from the true and living God leads to a culture of death. Or, or just put it in a slightly different way, rampant idolatry and ungodly, ungodliness do not over time promote life. Okay? It's just the reverse. Over time, idolatry is still, as the, the writer of the Proverbs says, it is the way that seems right to a person but its end is, in, uh, is the way of death. This is where idolatry leads. So in the context of a famine, we turn to the first narrative, which centers around this poisonous stew. Um, this is in uh, verses 38 through 41. In the midst of this idolatrous nation, there is nevertheless a remnant. Okay, so they're still true believers in spite of uh, this kind of cultural commitment to idolatry. And this community of prophets appear to be gathered, at least in this case, for the purpose of study and training and prayer. It seems to be that they're under the leadership, under the authority of the prophet Elisha. 
And if this is the same group as in the second um, narrative, there are roughly a hundred prophets uh, that are involved. So think, you know, in some sense, this is kind of like a, a little seminary, a, a group of ministerial students who are being equipped and trained uh, for ministry. Uh, but the group has to eat. They need to have a lunch, and to this end, um, an unnamed individual is sent out um, uh, to prepare a, a meal. And again, it's in a time of famine, so food is scarce. And so the servant goes out, and you know he's looking around for something edible, and finds these gourds. And and what's interesting is the the narrative tells us he didn't know what it was. Okay, that's not a good sign, but it, it also shows us, you know, that the scarcity issue. So. They're, they're willing to risk it, you know? And, and so it's not entirely, we think, oh, what an, an idiotic thing to do. But, you know, I think about that and I think, well, it wasn't too long ago, I was on a little camping trip to Red River Gorge. And, um, and lo and behold, um, some of uh, my daughters found a, a little patch of mushrooms. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait, I haven't even told you the story yet. And my oldest daughter's like, I won't name her name. Um, <laughs> she's like, I'm pretty sure these are edible mushrooms. I, 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 you know, and so we're like, oh, you know, she knows her mushrooms, I guess. And so, you know, we, we, they're picked and, 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 and a few of us, you know, nibble and take a little bite. And, and then there's this tingling. <laughs> And we didn't eat any more, but we're kind of waiting to see, is the other shoe going to drop? You know, is this going to, are we going to suddenly shrivel up and, and uh, go into convulsions or something? That did not happen. Um, but we didn't finish eating the mushrooms either. Okay, but that's where there was no food scarcity. So looking at this, this servant, you know, God bless him, um, he's trying to prepare a meal. And he, he's like, I think they're okay, I'm not sure. But the reality is, after the stew is made, and he's chopped up all of these gourds, these wild gourds, it turns out that, you know, some of the others, they taste it. And whether it's because of the bitterness or uh, of a quick reaction uh, to the food, uh, a cry goes out. There, there's poison, the poison in this stew, poison in this pot uh, that is actually, um, it's deadly. Now, some Old Testament scholars believe that this, is, this was a particular wild gourd that is, um, I guess it's still present in the area, um, but it's a gourd that in limited, in small amounts, it just acts as a laxative. It's very bitter. But in greater quantities, it is deadly. It can lead to death. So not knowing exactly what it was that was put in this pot, what we do know, though, is that the, this, these wild gourds made the stew, it made the entire meal inedible. And so this leads, you know, the, the prophet Elisha, um, you know, to take action. And he's described as taking flour and sprinkling it on the stew. And, and this is where, okay, I... I there's no, you know, there's nothing about flour that would suddenly turn food and, and make it edible. Um, this seems to be some just a visible sign. And I kind of wonder, is this not the prophet Elisha saying, okay, I'm going to have a little fun. <laughs> I'm going to make a, add a little drama to this. And, and instead of just, you know, saying a prayer and it being fine, you know, he's going to like do this kind of abracadabra thing, um, like a magician or something. That's what I would do, which is probably why I'm not a prophet. But, but I could see Elisha doing this. 
In any case, the result of this is that the power of God is released and that the food is miraculously made edible. It's made so that it nourishes and sustains life rather than taking it away. And this becomes a metaphor. This becomes a symbol of what uh, the prophet is about in a culture of death, in a land uh, that is poisonous. And following this miracle, we read of another. In this case, we have the miraculous feeding of the 100. Okay? We read of a man from a, uh, a nearby location called Baal uh, Shalisha, and he brings to Elisha and the company of prophets the first fruits from his harvest. It amounts just to some heads of grain and 20 loaves of barley. Now, when you think of loaves of barley, don't think, you know, of going to Kroger and, you know, pulling a loaf of Wonder Bread off the, the shelf. Um, these would have been like little, probably flat, um, uh, like pita-like or pancake-like uh, loaves of bread. And 20 loaves of these little loaves of barley bread would not have gone very far. It had been roughly, you know, barely an appetizer uh, for these, uh, uh, this group of prophets, the roughly 100. But nevertheless, um, Elisha instructs his servant to serve uh, this bread and grain as a meal uh, for the, the people. But the servant immediately objects, like, I can't, we can't serve this. Um, they're going to laugh at us. This is embarrassing if this is all we have. But Elisha responds in verse 43, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. God has spoken is what Elisha is saying. And the word of God, as we recall, is fully trustworthy. And not only is it fully trustworthy, but it comes with power. The word of God is not like our word. We, we can make all kinds of commands. We can um, make predictions and promises and issue directives that never come to pass and don't change a thing. That's human words. But the Word of God is not like this. The Word of God has the power within itself to achieve what it promises. And so Elisha says uh, to the servant, thus says the Lord, uh, not only will there be enough to eat, but there will be some left over. And so the servant obeys. And not only was there plenty of food uh, for a meal, but food left over. And this is, uh, in this miracle, then, um, in the first one, God transforms the food so that it is edible. And in the second miracle, he multiplies the food so that there's more than enough. And taking these stories together, you know, um, we just come to, what are some takeaways? What, what does this all mean for us? Well, there are lots of things, um, but let me focus on just three things. Uh, one is just on the surface of the stories, a reminder once again, that God cares and God provides for his people even when the circumstances around them, even when they are in situations of scarcity. Last week, we saw God's compassion and his provision for a widow and her two sons. And this week, it's compassion for a group of, of prophets. God knows what we need, and he promised us a to supply our needs. And he often goes, as he does in, 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 in these um, uh, miracles, he goes above and beyond 
what we need. So often, so that there's not just what we need, but often what we want. There's often a surplus. The psalmist echoes this sentiment when he writes, I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. Over and over, the scriptures show us that God cares and that he has inexhaustible resources. So these prophets, uh, there are times where we experience times of scarcity or deprivation. We don't need to fear. The Lord will provide. Now, normally, he, he provides through just kind of ordinary means, through employment, our work, um, through savings, perhaps. But there are other times where those things um, are not available or they fail. And then what? Well, God doesn't need a job to supply our needs. You know, he supplied a nation of Israelites for, for close to 40 years in the wilderness with manna and, and meat in a, a desert wilderness. Think about that. And very often, you know, the New Testament reminds us, um, sometimes uh, you have angels, you have, you, you, you have hospitality with angels unawares. And there are stories that I've heard over and over again where people were in particular need. I was just reading one this week of a family, well, it was a missionary who was telling the story of encountering a family in, um, near Siberia. This is uh, in the mid-last century. And um, this family, he tells a story, had been relocated because of their Christian faith. And so they were forced to relocate to this kind of remote area uh, in uh, the northern part of, of what was the Soviet Union. And this family was telling the missionary that prior to his coming, um, they had run out of their food sources. And the night they ran out, um, the, the dad recalled, uh, the kids, we had to send our kids to bed without a meal. And, and they said, well, you know, we had something to drink, but we didn't eat. Is there any bread? And they said, we're sorry, there isn't. And almost at that very moment, there was a knock on the door. And when they open the door, there is a pile of bread at their doorstep. And they didn't see anybody. You know, and, and who knows what that was. But the Bible tells us that God can supply uh, through angels if necessary. And he has inexhaustible resources to do so. There are times, however, in God's good and wise purposes that we do experience deprivation, that we will experience hardship, or at least there will come that day when we have to enter into that valley of the shadow of death. And we pass from this world on to the eternal kingdom. And even in these circumstances, the Christian's faith is that God will supply us the grace we need. He will supply his saints the strength even to endure those, those hard periods of life uh, and that ultimately will end in our death unless the Lord returns. In the end, he has not just promised, but he has sworn by his own name to bring his people safely to their eternal inheritance. And so part of what we're meant to understand is God is good. God cares for his people. And God is more than able to supply our needs. 
We can trust him. He is almighty and he is good. And and let me just say too, I mean, there's a part here um, that it's not only just about what God is doing, but in this case, it's how God is doing it. He's using the prophet as his instrument. And just, um, and we don't see it quite as clearly here, but you'll see it uh, more clearly in other places, that one of the themes of kings and of this section and of the Elijah section, in fact, is this theme that those who honor God's man, <laughs> those who honor the prophet, and here I'm thinking of Elisha, they are honored, they are supplied. And the reverse is also true, that those who mock God's prophet, that they are cursed, okay? You're going to see that theme work its way out. Now, ultimately, the way I see that applying is this is an encouragement to, to to put our trust and give our honor to a far greater prophet, Jesus. That those who honor Christ, those who follow Christ, those who bring glory to the name of Christ, they will be honored. God loves to supply their needs. Those who curse Christ, those who dishonor Christ or mock Christ, they can, expe- they can expect uh, the reverse, um, but to be cursed. And that's partly this theme that we see working its way through kings. It's also worth highlighting how God shows his care um, initially towards these prophets. Uh, in the second narrative, it begins with this man from Baal uh, Shalisha bringing his uh, first fruits to Elisha and to the community of God's people. Now again, this is a time of famine. <laughs> you, you, you can imagine, I, I, I'm thinking, you know, um, so here you have a man, he, he has a little bit of a harvest. The first fruits he, he brings isn't a lot, okay? Um, and during a harvest, this probably, um, well, this is a sign of this unnamed individual. We see this theme too, these unnamed individuals, these humble people whose faith is making a difference. And in this case, it's this man who brings the first fruits of his harvest. In part, he's doing it um, because the law requires him to give the first fruits to the Lord. And in this case, he's taking them uh, and using it for this community of, of, uh, of prophets. But the Lord uses this, and on his part, um, we should be encouraged that he's being honored in the sense that he brings his first and his best um, to, to the Lord, and, and he brings it uh, to the Lord in the person of Elisha and this community. And the Lord uses this uh, gift as a blessing by magnifying and uh, amplifying. This was the beginning of God's provision. And, you know, I was encouraged um, and challenged recently uh, as part of our, um, our, our daily, um, not daily, it was a, a one-day kind of a Zoom meeting with the elders. And we went around and, and we were just sharing, you know, scripture verses that really encouraged us to follow Christ. And one of the elders just shared this passage from James chapter 2, um, uh, 14 and following. And he said, this is a passage that just he, he thinks about regularly and that motivates him to follow Christ. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily bread, 
And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And the point of this is that so often, probably this is God's default position, that the way he meets the needs of his people, uh, you know, when there's just this acute need, is through other people, through his fellow servants, And that's what James is pointing out and pushing us to be the answer to prayer, (laughs) you know, that a family has um, uh, as we're sensitive to the leading of God's Holy Spirit. The narrative then, lastly, it points to Christ, who is the bread that satisfies. Speaking of the feeding of 100, did you think about how similar this miracle story is to a miracle that would take place nearly nine centuries later. Would another prophet, but in this case, had an audience of at least 5,000, you know, think about that, not 100, 5,000 in attendance, and felt the need to provide a meal. Do you remember what happened? Jesus asked his disciple Philip about purchasing enough food for the crowds who would come out into the wilderness to hear Jesus preach. And Philip responds, it would take six months of wages to purchase enough food just for each person to have one bite. That's the, the number. That's the, the, uh, the daunting task of trying to feed this massive group of people. And then another disciple, Andrew, introduces a boy, and he happens to have a lunch with him, a meal of five barley loaves and two fish. That's not even as much as Elisha had for only 100 people. But Jesus takes this boy's lunch, and not only is there enough bread and fish to go around, but after Jesus is finished feeding the 5,000 there are 12 baskets of barley bread left over. Surely more than one person at the time of Christ remembered that this was a very similar, but on a far greater scale, a very similar miracle to one that had been practiced by this prophet Elisha. And if they thought it through, this miracle of Jesus, like Elisha's, was powerful evidence that here before them was a true man of God. You see, every time Elisha's committing these miracles, everybody's recognizing, Elisha, you are from God. You speak for God, and we can have full trust in what you are declaring. Not one of your words, Elisha, will fall to the ground. How much more true is this, you see? This is part of the point that that the ministry of Jesus is making. It's built on these examples of the Old Testament prophets, uh, along with all the great saints of the Old Testament. They all kind of come together in the person of Christ and in the ministry of Jesus. And it's all for the purpose so that when the true Messiah comes, you won't miss him. Like there are all these, you know, neon signs pointing at Jesus. This is is the one who is declared all the way back in Genesis, the seed of the woman who would crush uh, the the seed of the serpent, uh, his head, so that you wouldn't like, is this the one? 
They would recognize Jesus is from God. His words are to be trusted. And then this leads then to the teaching of Jesus a little further down in John chapter 6. Jesus and his disciples cross back to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. But the crowds, you know, they just travel around to find Jesus. And they succeed. And then in John 6, 26, this is what Jesus says to the crowds. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes. See, Jesus is saying, as, as great as it was to get a great meal and to see God provide, and that's wonderful, you actually have a much deeper need. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Again, as important as it is to have your bellies filled, Jesus tells them they need to be seeking another kind of bread, the kind of food that nourishes their souls, that leads to eternal life. Well, what is this bread, you know, that Jesus is talking about? Well, he continues down in verse 33. For the bread of God is he, and here Jesus is referring to himself, is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Ultimately, the bread we need, the bread that satisfies the hunger of our souls, the bread that not, doesn't just give kind of life to the body and just kind of physical energy, but the life that leads to human flourishing now, that leads to, to the experience of fellowship with the triune God now, and that leads then into the, the inheritance of a kingdom that will, that will be enjoyed forever a kingdom of peace and joy and righteousness in the Spirit. Well, this bread is Jesus himself. To say that I am the bread of life, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, it would be an absurd claim if Jesus did not back it up with his life, with his miracles, and ultimately through his atoning death on the cross, and his bodily resurrection on the third day. The resurrection in the end is the greatest miracle of all. And this prepares us now to enter into our time of communion and to feed on Christ as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. In preparation, um, I'm going to pray, and then we will join together in uh, worship, preparing for communion. Our God and our Father, we are grateful for your word, and we pray that it would come to life within us. We pray that Christ, Lord, we would be in union with Christ, that we'd be connected to him as uh, uh, the branch is to the vine, and that, Lord, your bread that leads to eternal life would be at work in each of us, sanctifying us, opening up our eyes, producing gratitude and life within us. And so we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.